welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 96, where we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or from Pick Us Up from iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and by having a chinwag with some burke in a chip shop, yeah? Hey, eh, cool and blimey. Today we've got a very, very European book uh, that was uh, produced in America. It is Excalibur number one, published by Marvel, October 1988 cover date. Covered by Alan Davis and Paul Neary, written by Chris Claremont, penciled by Alan Davis, inked by Paul Neary, lettered by Tom Orzakowski, colored by Glynis Oliver, editors, Anne Nocenti and Terry Cavanaugh, and editor-in-chief is Tom DeFalco. Series logo was designed by Ken Lopez. And the cover price is a dollar fifty U.S., two dollars Canadian. Mm-hmm. That's that's pricey for a book of this vintage. I thought so uh, too. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, this is obviously taking advantage of that old direct market we've uh, yes. mentioned a few times. <laughs> now, before we get into the book, let's meet Mister Chris Claremont, who I'm surprised we haven't discussed. I was really surprised at all. also, but yeah, we had not, not done a bio on him, so this is our first That's stab true. at it. It's almost like we purposely avoid X-Men books for some reason, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, Christopher S. Claremont was born November 25th, 1950 in London, England, United Kingdom. Uh, Claremont is Jewish on his mother's side, and he lived on a community farm in Israel during his youth. Chris's family moved to the United States when he was three, and he was raised primarily on Long Island in New York. Uh, His grandmother purchased for him a subscription to the British comics magazine Eagle when he was still a child, and he grew up reading stories like Dan Dare, which is also from the United Kingdom. Uh, Chris found them uh, more exciting than the Batman and Superman comics of the 1950s and early 60s, and... uh, Really can't blame him. Um, <laughs> uh, though by his senior year in high school, he found those early Stan Lee and Jack Kirby Marvel comics. He was also fond of the works of Robert Heinlein, Rudyard Kipling, and C.S. Forrester. Now, Chris studied at Bard College, and he did so as a political theorist, saying acting in political theory, studying acting in political theory and writing novels with, with the hope of becoming a director. He graduated in 1972. In a 2017 interview with CarlsComics.com, Claremont said, I graduated with a degree in acting, and I started out in New York to be a professional actor, both on stage and in television. But to pay the bills, I started working. One of the things I did was writing and I never really considered writing as a profession, any more than you consider breathing to keep yourself alive. It's just something you do. Writing was something I did. Claremont's career began in 1969 while in college when he was hired as an intern in Marvel Comics. During this time, he received a plot assist credit for X-Men number 59, written by Roy Thomas. This is an August 1969 cover date. Thomas was later assigned Thomas later assigned Claremont his first professional scripting assignment on Daredevil and the Black Widow number 102 that in August 1973 cover date. Uh, Claremont was uh, given the fledgling feature Iron Fist in Marvel Premiere as of issue 23 of that series. That's August 1975 cover date. Uh, He was joined two issues later by artist John Byrne, and the two continued to work together when the character received his own self-titled series in November 1975, and that series went for 15 issues. Uh, One of the first new characters created by Claremont was Madrox the Multiple Man. He first appeared in Giant Size Fantastic Four number 4, that's February 1975, 
1975 cover date. Uh, Marvel editor-in-chief at the time, Len Wein, recognized Claremont's enthusiasm for the new X-Men. This is the all-new, uh, all-different that appeared in giant size right. uh, that, that Len, Len Wein and uh, Dave Cockrum had created in 1975. And so he hired Claremont to take over that series as of issue number 94. That's May 1975 cover date. Uh, the series was doing so poorly at the time, Len Wein figured that it wouldn't annoy any other any other of Marvel's writers to put Claremont on the book. Right, it was like bi-monthly or quarterly at this point. And it was, uh, yeah, I think so. And people really saw it as being on its way out, uh, which is funny what happened. So, uh, <laughs> to carlscomics.com, Chris said, Len had to leave the book, and he said he wanted to know who was going to, uh, wanted to write it. I didn't even give him a chance to ask the question. I just kicked down his door, jumped on him, and said, I'm doing it, because I helped him with a couple of little moments along the way in giant size, and I wanted to work with Dave Cockrum really badly. According to more, former Marvel editor-in-chief Bob Harris, he lived it and breathed it. He would write whole paragraphs about what people were wearing. He got really into the, those people's thoughts, hopes, and dreams. By his own admission, Claremont acquired a reputation for taking a long time to resolve plot threads. And longtime X-Men editor Louise Simonson recounted that whenever he was at a loss for story ideas, all he'd have to do was go through all the old plot threads that he had left for the past year or two. Uh, now, Dave Cochran would leave Uncanny, or X-Men, actually, still at the time, at uh, issue 107. This is uh, October of uh, 76, I believe. Yeah. And uh, John Byrne would uh, pick up artistic duties from there. Uh, during his 17 years as X-Men writer, Claremont wrote or co-wrote many classic X-Men stories, including the Dark Phoenix Saga and Days, Days, blah, 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 Days of Future Past, even. Uh, and he also co-created Excalibur with the fellow we're about to introduce you to right now. That's right. Across the table, we have Alan Davis, born June 18th, also in the, in the United Kingdom. Alan's first work was for the UK fanzine Fusion, issue number seven to be exact. His first professional work was a strip called The Crusader in Rampage magazine number 41, November 1981 cover date for Marvel UK. This is during the brief time that Des Skin handled Marvel UK. He would go on to be more famous for creating the comics anthology magazine Warrior and other things. We'll talk about him a little bit later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rampage magazine was Marvel's UK's answer to not brand Ech. And the Crusader was a bare ripoff of Batman. Davis's big break was drawing the revamped Captain Britain story in The Mighty World of Marvel from issue number 377, that was a September 1981 cover date, to issue 388 at an August 1982 cover date. Davis did not leave enough room for word balloons in the five-page first installment, so it had to be recut to six pages. Uh, Davis and Moore f- uh, formed a close working re- partnership as creators. Uh, they also created Dr. and Quinch, or Dr. and Quinch, for yeah. the anthology magazine 2008, uh, and that ran from 1983 through 87. Uh, later, Davis would replace Gary Leach on Marvel Man, and that's in that Warrior magazine, and he would work with Alan Moore again there. Uh, Davis also drew the story Harry 20 on the Ro- High Rock, and that was in 20, uh, 2008 AD from Prague. They call their issues Prague. Yep. Uh, uh, 287 is uh, October 1982 cover date, all the way through to Prague 307, which had a March 1983 cover date. In uh, 1985, Davis received his big break in the United States when he was hired by DC Comics to draw up Batman and the Outsiders, uh, beginning with issue number 22. That's June 1985 cover date. His work proved popular enough for him to be, to be assigned artistic duties on DC's flagship title, Detective Comics, beginning with issue 569. That's December 1986 cover date. And he was again paired with his uh, his Batman and the Outsiders running buddy, uh, Mike W. Baugh. Yep. 
Uh, and it succeeded Jim Aparo, so that was no small feat. Yeah, no, <laughs> big no. shoes to fill. Absolutely. Uh, so during the Batman Year 2 storyline, this is Detective Comics 575 to 578, June to September 1987 cover dates, Davis encountered difficulties with his editor and left after the first issue of the four-issue storyline. Todd McFarlane finished the remaining three issues. In the story, Barr wanted the character Joe Chill to have a really big gun. He asked Davis to draw Chill with a Mauser. So Davis did so all throughout Detective Comics 575, plus the cover to the issue. Davis then came across copies of the pages for Batman number 404 by Miller and Mazzucchelli. That was year one, chapter one, and Joe Chill has a different gun. This is how far ahead, by the way, uh, Davis was able <laughs> to draw. It really, it's, yep. it's, he's considered a very speedy artist. Uh, Davis suggested that they change Mazzucchelli's panels. as It was only in a few panels. Instead, DC decided to have Davis redraw all of his drawings of Chill's <laughs> gun, including the cover to Detective Comics number 575. Davis refused, and Dick Giordano ended up doing it instead. So then Davis accepted an offer by Chris Claremont to work on Marvel Comics X-Men books. With Claremont, Davis drew two New Mutants annuals and three issues for Uncanny X-Men, and then they launched Excalibur, which we're going to read in a few minutes. But first, let's meet the cast. We've got Captain Britain. Uh, this other Cap first appeared in Captain Britain Weekly number 1. That was cover dated the week ending October 13th, 1976 by Chris Claremont and Herb Trimpey. Uh, this was the first original material published by Marvel UK, about whom we will be talking about a bit later. Uh, born and raised in a small town of, Mal- of Malden, Essex, uh, Brian Braddock inherited a fortune from his wealthy parents and then got into a motorcycle. Accident. Uh, accident. <laughs> Yes. Uh, Now Merlin and his daughter Roma came to Brian's broken form and offered him the Amulet of Right, or the Sword of Might. Brian would choose the amulet, and so became Captain Britain. Always choose the sword, dude. Come on, what is wrong with you? Then uh, there's a woman named Megan Pusineau. Is that sound right? Okay. First appeared in Mighty World of Marvel number 7, December 1983, cover date by Alan Moore and Alan Davis. An empathetic metamorph born during a blizzard near Fenborough Station in England, Megan surprised her parents and attending nurses by growing fur as a baby. Her family hid her away in a trailer for a while, but eventually she met Captain Britain, fell in love with him, and fights regularly by his side, even joining Excalibur. And she has elf ears. That's right. Um, <laughs> and no fur either. I guess no, that went away. The fur comes and goes. Yeah. <laughs> now, Nightcrawler, the furry blue teleporting fella, first appeared in Giant Size X-Men number one. That's May 1975, cover date by Len Wein and Dave Cockrum. Kurt Wagner was found as a baby on the edge of the Black Forest in Germany by a fortune teller working at a Bavarian circus. Having blue fur and weird appendages, she had Kurt work in the circus, the circus sideshow, uh, which he enjoyed immensely. Uh, his teleportation ability, like many of the uh, his fellow mutants, would right. show up at puberty. Mm-hmm. Uh, later, he gets blamed for a murder, and so he joins up with Professor X's X-Men in America. Fair enough. Why not? That's sure. Who else wouldn't? Uh, Phoenix, also known as Rachel Ann Summers, first appeared in X-Men number 141, January 1981 cover, by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. This is a daughter of Jean Grey and Scott Summers from a different timeline, and you'll be seeing a little more of that here in Excalibur. Uh, see, so this is all for uh, fallout from Days of Future Past, which we will probably have to talk about someday. Sure. Uh, she's like a Dark Phoenix light, power-wise. Plus, she's telepathic. I mean, actually, Dark Phoenix was telepathic also, but it factors in more heavily with Rachel. She's always with her, yeah. always talking telepathy all the time. 
Now, uh, Shadow Cat, Catherine Ann Kitty Pride, first appeared in Uncanny X-Men number 129, January 1980, cover date by Claremont and Byrne. Uh, Kitty was born in Deerfield, Illinois, and like most mutants, her power to become intangible began manifesting when she became a teenager. She was initially recruited by the Hellfire Club. However, Kitty decided to join up with Professor X and his X-Men and went through about a dozen costume changes in half as many issues. That's right. And uh, even pretty wild name changes, too. She's not, oh, yes, she Pixie stay. Sprite. <laughs> yeah, Shattercat is not her final name, but that's what she is here. So uh, here's how we came down to Excalibur. After the 1988 event Fall of Mutants, in which nearly all the X-Men appear to have died, Nightcrawler and Shattercat wake up on Muir Island in the care of Dr. Moira Taggart. Muir Island is where Taggart set up the Mutant Research Center, where mutants can receive medical help and be researched. Also holds some mutant villains, which never leads to any problems. Uh, Nightcrawler and Shadowcat are devastated by the loss of their teammates And Captain Brother, Br- Captain Britain, brother to the mutant Psylocke Is also pretty broken up about it uh, Without warning, Phoenix came from an alternate universe called Mojo World Hunted by met- metallic wolvish robots called Wolves. Shadowcat, Nightcrawler, Megan, and Captain Britain help Phoenix out uh, They decide to form a new team in memory of the X-Men uh, Naming the team Excalibur after the magical sword of King Arthur and uh, if if you know you wanted the sales to be better, it should have been X yeah. caliber. But you, what do you one would have thought that would have been the way to go. But <laughs> I guess that was not the de rigueur yet. Yes, this is going to be in the E section on the on the, <laughs> the, game, so the X section. Uh, and uh, so they set up their headquarters in Captain Britain's lighthouse, uh, con- which is a convergence of alternate realities. Yeah, convenient that. Do you when you right. in, in your X Men box is Excalibur in the front, or do you have it chronologically? How do you do it? Oh, I've I've got a, a long box that's probably 90% Excalibur, so that, it's that, its own thing. That takes yeah. care of it right there, yeah. Uh, speaking of which, let's jump right into Excalibur number one. The cover shows the team, Phoenix in front, standing on a rooftop. Uh, well, Nightcrawler's technically crouching, as always. I don't know, he doesn't seem to be able to stand upright uh, <laughs> normally. Behind them are the Houses of Parliament, and way in the distance at the lower left is Big Ben. Now, the Parliament of of England was the legislature of the Kingdom of England, existing from the early 13th century until 1707, when it became the Parliament of Great Britain, after the political union of England and Scotland created the Kingdom of Great Britain. The Houses of Parliament is the colloquial name for the Palace of Westminster. It was built initially in 1016, but rebuilt in 1840 after a fire. Big Ben is the nickname for the great bell of the clock at the north end of the Palace of of Westminster in London, and is usually extended to refer to both the clock and the clock tower, but it technically is just the bell. The bell. Uh, The 315-foot-tall tower was designed by Augustus Pugin, and when completed in 1859, its clock was the largest and most accurate four-face striking and chiming clock in the world. The official name of the tower in which Big Ben is located was originally the Clock Tower, but was renamed Elizabeth Tower in 2012 to mark the 60th anniversary of Elizabeth II. I would have never known that. Yeah. It's, it's always Big Ben to me. It's going to be Big know. Ben forever, I think. Yeah. <laughs> now, our story opens at night on a moor. Uh, this has uh, some kind of factory on it. Uh, looks like Stonehenge is just down the street a bit. Caption reads, Loch Diamond in the Highlands of Scotland, a haunted place on a haunted night. Lock Demon, which would mean Demon Lake, does not actually exist. Stonehenge, though, does exist, but it's in Wiltshire, England. 
Uh, there were a lot of standing stones in Scotland, however, uh, most between 3,000 and 5,000 years old. Yeah, very stonehenge looking structures, so we can, sure. let, we can let this go. Uh, the scene cuts to what must be the interior of the factory on Loch Demon. And this is where we see a hairy arm monster in silhouette sitting by a campfire. And the title of this story is a piece, uh, a piece of on a piece of torn poster, War Wolves of London. That's a uh, Warren Zevon, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we close up on the monster, and he's a lot less monstrous. He looks very similar to the characters Tweedledee and Tweedledum from Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, which was uh, 1865 from Macmillan. Caption reads. His name is Tweedledope. Must be a cousin of the aforementioned fellow. I would assume so, yeah. But that doesn't matter. What he's doing, that's what matters. And what he's doing is fooling around with the head of a robot. And that robot is Widget. Oh, God, Chris, do we need to get into all this right now? (laughs) Let's just say for now that it's a grown-up version of Kitty Pride from... An alternate future. Yeah, that, that clears it right up, I'm sure. Uh, mm. a, a grown-up robot version of Kitty Pride from an alternate future. Let's be clear about that. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> uh, she, who for a while is referred to as he, will join the Excalibur team later on, but we're going to leave that where it is right now. Sure. Uh, Tweedledope just dumps a can of baked beans into Widget's head and uh, then some assorted junk, uh, an apple core, a key, a cigarette butt, a razor blade. And Tweedledope takes a taste with his finger. <laughs> Suddenly, from a nearby transistor radio... And now, the latest on the London hostage situation, where it's reliably recorded that Captain Britain, together with a band of costumed adventurers known as Excalibur, has been... And Tweedledope's inspired by the radio and shoves it into the bean-filled robot head. <laughs> he gives this to professional bartender's cocktail shake, but this has no effect. Tweedledope looks at a wanted poster displaying members of the Crazy Gang, and it looks like he appears to be a member. (laughs) Now, the Crazy Gang is a team of villains based on characters from Alice's Adventures in Wonderland that debuted in Marvel UK's Marvel Superheroes number 377. It's a September 1981 cover date by David Thorpe, Paul Neary, and Alan Davis. The Crazy Gang would come to Marvel's mainstream Earth, conventionally Earth 616, in Marvel UK's The Mighty World of Marvel number 10. That's um, March 1984 cover date by Alan Moore and Alan Davis. They'll have their American debut in this very series a few issues from now. Uh, we'll get to discuss in Marvel UK a bit later on. Yeah, that's the big uh, power of the second half of the show. Hmm. Uh, as Tweedledope strolls away, he chucks the robot skull behind him dejectedly and then fails to see Widget blink to life with a ping. Meanwhile... Some 500 miles roughly southward in the haunted capital of this haunted realm. A rooftop-level shot of London at night, light beaming from the streets below. Along one rooftop is a silhouette of four werewolves. Below, a bunch of cops have gathered around a theater named Wally's, and Captain Britain's with them. There's a uh, fellow, the guy down there, one of the cops says, I must be, I must be daft. Turned into you and a pair of teenagers when I've trained the police officers at hand. Captain Britain goes, Shadowcat and Phoenix are no more ordinary teens, Commander Thomas, than I am an ordinary man. That meant to be reassuring. Trust me, die. This way is best. And by that, he means the most reckless. Mm-hmm. Those other two teens are on a rooftop hanging out with a uniformed police officer. And he doesn't seem to like their snazzy ways. Not at all. He says, 
Lass your age should be home a bed, not gallivanting around rooftops at three in the flippin' morning. I'm the policeman, miss, not you. And Phoenix goes, Shadowcat, we have our cue. Captain Britain says it's, it's time to move. So Kitty walks over to Rachel and touches her on the shoulder. In doing so, they both become intangible and sink right through the floor. The roof. roof. Right. Uh, the cop says, Wait, hold on, you can't... Truth! And Shadowcat says, See, Sarge, no need to worry. In our way, we're as professional as you guys. But in our time, my partner here and I helped save the world at least twice. So a gang of street dogs is really no great big deal. Thanks for worrying, though. That's sweet. See ya! Cobb says, She fell through the roof, like a ghost. And she said her friend the redhead could read thoughts. Impossible. And yet, I saw. What a wild, wonderful world this is, glory! The officer turns in time to see a warwolf pouncing on him. And the warwolf says, Right you are, boy, sonny. Glory to the box. <laughs> the warwolf bites the officer's head, causing an orange elastic bl- electric blast. Uh, this leaves the skin behind us like some kind of jumpsuit that the uh, warwolf will now wear. Doesn't look like it would fit, does it? But somehow yeah. it seems to work out just fine. Sure. Caption reads, Ray Mulholland, good man, good cop, husband and father with all the dreams a man can have. Some fulfilled, most not, but he never minded. That's the way life is, you play the hand you're dealt. In a twinkling, in a trice, that's all stripped from him. So there's nothing left of substance, there's only the shell. And the warwolf says, A little worn about the edges, not the most stylish I've seen, but the fit is perfect. And me, I'm the kind, prefers comfort to fashion any day. Ha, I hear you, weird metal dog beast. <laughs> we are simpatico, uh, boy. <laughs> yes. Uh, seconds later, Shadowcat and Phoenix phase downstairs to find some armed men in hoods holding everyone hostage, as expected. Uh, suddenly, Phoenix feels like a psychic twinge or something and cries out, which gets the attention of the bad guys. Yeah, so Shattercat phases uh, herself and Phoenix into a janitor's closet just in time and then takes off, leaving two armed dudes to find Phoenix's body curled up in the fetal position on the floor. The bad guys grab Phoenix and drag her down the hall. Yeah, well, one of them says, Why so what you said? Oi, Betty, you stupid git. I thought you such a place. Cool, Reggie. She ain't half a looker. Keep your mind on business, Toby. You can play later. Stuck in the wall, Shadowcat has to think fast in order to remedy this situation. So Kitty decides she needs to spook him. Those are her words exactly. <laughs> but not so much that they open fire on the hostages. And so uh, Shadowcat puts on a sheet and faces through the wall, moaning like a ghost. Who disturbs my rest? And uh, one of the crooks says, Sid! Stay cool, Red. Nothing to be afraid of. We're saying things, is all. Stay back. Don't. Don't you do violence. Don't come near me. Shall perish by violence. I'm not fooling. I mean it. I'll shoot. And he does shoot. But, as you might imagine, the blast goes right through her, naturally. You will be cast from the world of men into the abyssal shadow realms of eternal torment. Laying it on a little thick, aren't you there? Really? Uh, now, outside the establishment, everyone hears the shotgun blast. 
Captain Britton and Commander Di Thomas rush toward the entrance. Inside, Shadowcat grabs onto Reg to keep him from shooting at anyone else. In doing so, he adopts her power, and uh, so he thinks he is a ghost. That's right, he can't touch his gun because he's all phased out. Mm-hmm. Shattercat says, What befell one can befall you all, unless you surrender your weapons and renounce your evil ways. That's good enough for the criminals, all of whom at least stop what they're doing to gape in awe, if not drop their weapons totally. But then Phoenix shows up a-blazing to finish the job. You heard the lady. With Excalibur, one warning is all you get. With a swipe of her fiery wing, Phoenix knocks the guns out of some villain's hand and then backwings them against the wall with a slam. Shattercat thinks, but so Phoenix can hear her. Show off! Look who's talking. Now Captain Britain busts through the front door, and I mean he really busts through. He turns it into toothpicks <laughs> and just blam! This is the police! Nobody move! Sorry to steal your Thundercat. Party's already over. Bad guys never knew what hit him. Uh, sure they do. Some kind of spooky ghost and a flaming pterodactyl, right? That's what I saw. <laughs> Was there trouble? We heard a shot. Nothing we couldn't handle, right, Phoenix? Phoenix has a gloved hand over her face. Right. Then, a sleazy, guy's John, a sleazy guy dressed like John Travolta from Saturday Night Fever creeps up behind Phoenix and introduces himself. Yeah, he says, Nigel Frobisher, Merchant Bacon, want to express me gratitude, privately. <laughs> Please go away. Your lips say that, my darling. So do mine. Go away. And Captain Britain turns to Phoenix while Nigel walks away, muttering under his breath, saying, Bouncy, stuck-up, arrogant, sort of think he's throwing his weight around. Are you all right, Phoenix? I'll manage. Something happened, Cap. One moment, everything was fine. The next, it was as though I was dying. But it wasn't me dying. I mean, it was someone else. Their last terrible, despairing, psychic scream. And now, no matter how hard I scan, I can't find even a residual trace of that person's thoughts. It's as though the mind I touched never even existed. Well, I mean, didn't you say it was their last psychic scream? I mean, they're probably dead. In about 300 words, she said. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. (laughs) Uh, A while away in time and space, a fellow sits on his car, in his car on a darkened street, waiting waiting for some girl to come out of something. Uh, He's wearing a red jacket and a yellow ruffled shirt. His hair is done up in what would have been then a very retro-looking greaser haircut. (laughs) The warwolf in Captain Ray Mulholland's skin approaches the vehicle. Mm. A fellow named Jacko goes, Come on, Popsy, you silly cow. Get a wiggle on. Night won't last forever. And Ray knocks on the hood of the car. Tunk, tunk. Wow, Constable. Crikey. You didn't give half a fright. Apologies, lad, but in all honesty, you have good reason to be scared. Another warwolf leaps into the driver's window to take over this guy's identity. And remember, folks, the driver's side window is on the right in the United Kingdom. That's right. Uh, caption reads, Jacko Petri, no time to scream, so Rachel Summers does it for him. Over at One Merlin Muse, Kitty and si- uh, which is Kitty and Phoenix's apartment, they're in the bathroom together. Shadowcat is trying to soothe raz- Rachel's frazzled nerves. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. I'm here, Ray. You're safe. Again, Kitty. It happened again. And I bet it's going to happen again, even. 
Probably. Uh, indeed, pretty soon, uh, since that uh, Popsy woman finally emerges from wherever she was, uh, Popsy finds Ray and Jacko standing outside his car. Obviously, she doesn't know that they're werewolves in human skin. Yeah, they really yet. wear those pretty well. They look. They look. They, they do. That's a nice fit. Uh, Popsy says, "Jacko, coo, am I so late? You've gone and called the coppers on me, ducks." And the cop, the cop, werewolf says, "Just passing the toy, miss." And Jacko goes, "Oh, as always, Popsy, my sweet." You're well worth the wait. And that evening, back at Merlin Muse, Shadowcat is looking over some old photographs and letters and crying. They were her best friends, but she'd never respected them more than on the day they died. Well, a lot of a lot of good it did them then, right? Yeah, really. Maybe you should have <laughs> thought of them earlier, but uh, she thinks to herself, always figured we X-Men led charmed lives that no matter what we'd pull through, silly girls hoped that joke sure was on me. Don't let this shake your resolve to believe in falsehoods going forward, Kitty. Uh, a life of delusion is the one to leave. It's the way to go. Yeah. So Kitty <laughs> wonders whether Excalibur will be worthy enough to assume the role that the X-Men once occupied. Nope. Since, since she thinks they're all dead, remember. Yeah. It doesn't quite work that way, but that's the future Excalibur to worry about. Yes. <laughs> and, and mileage may vary, yeah. I suppose. Uh, then Captain Britain shows up in his civilian guise as Brian Braddock which is to wear a double-breasted black dinner jacket with gold buttons. And naturally, he's carrying a saucer of tea. In case you weren't sure he was British. If you weren't sure, Just in this, case. This'll, this'll drive it home. Uh, Shadowcat says, Brian, didn't mean to jump so. You startled me. My apologies. How are you feeling? Fine, except for the headache. I seem to get now from the strain of counteracting my phasing power and keeping my body solid. You've been spending a lot of time down here in my old workshop. Rachel and I are getting worried. Sorry, I get sort of macro-obsessive when I'm working on a project. Rachel tells me you're something of an electronics whiz. I wish. Inspired Tinkerer is more like it. So was I when I was in school. Thinking of those days now, it seems like ancient history. Came with me, remembering life before I joined with the X-Men. You still miss them? Always will. I have business back in town, and Rachel's seeing a play. Why don't you join us? Rain check, okay? I, uh, pride myself on finishing what I start. Hey, Brian, how's Ray doing? As well as can be expected. Thank heaven. There have been no more of the three of those strange seizures over the past few days. She'd be better, though, if she could determine what their cause was. Yes, another action-packed complex scene brought to you by the marvelous House of Ideas. <laughs> Elsewhere on the west coast of England. Nightcrawler and Megan appear at Captain Britain's lighthouse headquarters and discuss the plans to turn it into Excalibur headquarters. Mm. Megan goes, this is the observatory, our living room. Nightcrawler says, spectacular, but does Captain Britain approve of this plan to turn your home into Excalibur's headquarters? It's a splendid idea. He won't mind a bit. And then Nightcrawler and Megan make it to the bedroom. Which is packed with clutter and has a circular bed, Maybe which I don't know. I don't think I'd ever be able to get comfortable in. I mean, where do you, where do you get sheets for that kind of a thing? Right? I have no idea. <laughs> Nightcrawler says, if you say so, unglaublich. Now that is what I call a bed. And it's not for you. <sighs> Pardon the clutter. I had to clear out the lower levels to make room for you, Kitty, and Rachel. Like some tea? Love some, thank you. You know, this lighthouse is bigger than it looks. There's plenty of room. Thinks to himself, 
But if Brian doesn't know we're moving in, it could mean trouble. Nightcrawler comes to a door at the bottom of the lighthouse's circular staircase. Megan, where's this door lead? The one opposite the front entrance? Storage cellars. Nightcrawler opens this door to the storage cellars and finds himself in a huge golden arena full of fantastic characters. Yeah, like a big orange SM master, a couple of orcos from He Man, a knight in armor riding a weird frog, a guy from a Hieronymus Bosch painting. Yeah, all kinds of guys over there. Uh, Nightcrawler says, Glory! As several hands reach for Nightcrawler, he bamps out of there and reappears in the kitchen with Megan. Strumming on the old banjo. <laughs> Megan goes, Yay! Megan, beware! Danger! Creatures in your basement! Megan and Nightcrawler head downstairs to investigate. Be careful! I'll be fine. It's you I'll be concerned about. You're as weak as a baby. And Megan throws open the same door Nightcrawler opened earlier. And beyond it is a storage room. Empty! Ah! But it was... I saw... my gut. Did I imagine it? Mm. Over in London, is it Thameside? Thameside. Thameside. Yeah. Uh, that is on the bank of the River Thames, which bisects the city. In an office space at Fraser's Bank, Nigel Frobisher is chatting up Abby, the receptionist. While Ra- Rachel, I was going to say Raven, while Rachel is having a telepathic conversation with Nightcrawler and Megan over, at, over near the windows. And Nigel said to the receptionist, Who's the looker, Abby? Nothing to do with you. And she thinks to herself, Pig. Just my type. That'll be the day. And she thinks to herself, Pig. Care to introduce us? Unlike some people, Nigel. And she thinks to herself, Pig. Then she speaks again. I have work to do. No matter. Be more fun breaking the ice on me own. And she thinks to herself, I do hope, Pig, you fall in. Uh, Nigel approaches Rachel, not knowing she is conversing telepathically with Megan and Nightcrawler. Nigel Frobisher, merchant banking. Charmed, I'm sure. Megan says, In all the time since Brian and I moved to the lighthouse, nothing like what Nightcrawler ever saw happen to us. Phoenix says, Fascinating. I'll tell Brian. Maybe he'll have some ideas. Nightcrawler says, We'll be in London tonight. And Nigel says, You know, my sweet, can't shake the feeling. We've met somewhere before. Now Rachel snaps out of her mental bond with the others. And flames out into Phoenix to scare Nigel off. (laughs) She thinks to herself, yes, it's a little overreaction. Uh, She thinks to herself, this man, his hands, his thoughts, then shouts, I beg your pardon. I strongly suggest, Mr. Frobisher, the next time you're with a lady, be a gentleman. Or, I mean, at least come up with some better pickup lines, right? I know, right? I have a couple I know that never work. Uh, creeping behind a curtain, Brian Braddock watched the entire scene unfold. Thinks to himself he might have stepped in had Phoenix not handled her own business. Probably should have stepped in nonetheless. Right. Uh, just then, Courtney Ross walks in. Now, she's a former flame of Captain Britain's, and she's the daughter of a well-to-do family that, I don't know, probably owns half this bank or something. Something like that. She looks like a yuppie woman, typical of the sure. 80s, yeah. She says, Brian, sorry I'm late. The usual crisis on Wall Street. You know, several thousand 401ks were wiped out. Nothing to be concerned with. That's Nothing to see stuff. here. No. Nothing to see here. Captain Britain goes, Courtney Ross. I don't mind waiting, especially for you. Or for Jaffa Cakes, which is a mm-hmm. British delicacy. Courtney <laughs> says, Flatterer, music to my ears. I must say, the years have been good to you. 
No less than you. It seems like only yesterday we were at university together. Now you're senior vice president of this bank, and more beautiful than I remember. But when did you become a blonde? Always was. But in school, I considered this color socially and politically declassé. Too flashy an individual. So I dotted Auburn. She went with the old adage, brunettes have less fun. That's right. <laughs> that was what she wanted. Uh, Brian, Brian isn't just here to talk up his ex-girlfriend, however. He actually needs a favor from her in her capacity as a banker. Uh, we don't get the details here, but we can assume it's a wad of money that he needs, right? That's what else are you be talking about. What are you going to go to a bank for? Yeah. Yeah, they do give you free water bottles. But, That's you know, pretty much it, yeah. The, the money's where it's at. Uh, later, back at Merlin Muse, plans are reaching fruition. The program Shadowcat has been working on to track the werewolves is working. So uh, her plan is to dress up like Phoenix and use a doppelganger energy module to replicate her signature. This will uh, draw the werewolves out to confront her and then win, I guess? I guess. That's it, huh? Sure. All right. <laughs> it's as good a, good a plan as any. Uh, Shadowcat leaves the Merlin Muse just as Nightcrawler and Megan arrive, neither knowing that they missed each other. Later, Nightcrawler is taking a hot bath. He says, Ah, much, much better. Thinks to himself, I love English bathtubs. They're the only ones I know that I can stretch out full length. A century or two of this, and I might actually start to feel human again. Yow! Without knocking, Megan comes into the bathroom with a mug of hot cocoa. Megan goes, Since you were so cold, Nighty, I fixed you a mug of steaming hot cocoa. What's the matter? Megan, dear girl, a gentleman prefers some privacy in his bath. Oh, how strange. On Dynasty, Joan Collins never seems to mind being interrupted in her bubble bath. And she is talking, of course, of the TV drama Dynasty that ran on ABC from January 1981 to May 1989. Nightcrawler has one more thought as he takes the mug from Megan with his tail and she leaves the bathroom. He thinks, unlike you, she doesn't have a very big, very powerful, very hot-tempered boyfriend. Actually, you know, smart money's on Joan Collins probably having quite a few of them. Right, at, at that time, she probably had half a sure. dozen, really. <laughs> now, meanwhile, Shadowcat is skulking around the seedier areas of London, hoping to root out the Wolves with no luck. She does phase through a blue-haired punk rocker-looking uh, guy to uh, grope her, though. That's nice. Looking, yeah. Uh, back at Merlin's Muse, a Nightcrawler wanders down into the basement where Shadowcat was working on her project obsessively, if you recall. He stumbles on her plan to lure out the werewolves. Over at the Aldwych Theater, the London home of the Royal Shakespeare Company, Phoenix is hanging out in the back of the theater as Rachel, taking in a performance of Hamlet. Nightcrawler busts through with an urgent telepathic message. Phoenix! No need to yell, Kurt. I'm always in a light telepathic rapport with the team. Just mentally call my name and I'll hear. I'll explain as I go. Kitty's in East London, the old Rockside Warehouse District. Get to her, quick as you can, and alert Captain Britain as well. Megan and I are already on our way. Well, if Phoenix is always in a light telepathic rapport with the rest of the of Excalibur, can't she just contact Kitty that very same way? It, in fact, shouldn't she know what Kitty's doing? I don't really understand. At this. the very second? Yeah. Uh, but Rachel blazes out it into her Phoenix form right in the back <laughs> of the theater and takes <laughs> off. Always. <laughs> it's done, Nightcrawler. I'll be with her in a flash. 
Now, the Aldwych Theatre is a West End theatre located in Aldwych in the city of Westminster, built in 1905 and seating uh, 1,200 people on three levels. On December 15, 1960, after intense speculation, it was announced that the Royal Shakespeare Company was to make the Aldwych Theatre its base in London for the next three years. In the event, the company stayed for over 20 years, finally moving to the Barbican Arts Centre in 1982 which is still six years before this issue of Excalibur came out. <laughs> uh, we're thinking maybe Chris Claremont hadn't been back to England in a while, hadn't updated yeah. his uh, <laughs> facts. Uh, in March 2018, the Aldwych Theatre will open the world and has opened the world premiere of Tina, the Tina Turner musical. Love it. That's nice. Uh, now, the tragedy of Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, which is normally shortened to just Hamlet, is a tragedy written by William Shakespeare at an uncertain date, somewhere between uh, 1599 and 1602. Set in Denmark, the play dramatizes the revenge Prince Hamlet is called to wreck upon his uncle Claudius by the ghost of Hamlet's father, King Hamlet. Uh, the reader can tell the play is Hamlet because the panel depicts the the one you always see, alas, poor Yurik, yep. where Prince Hamlet addresses the skull of a jester with a long soliloquy. He's either talking to a skull or they're saying to be or not to be. One of the That's it. it's, it's yep. one of the two. So uh, Shadowcat is strolling around some bad streets in London, and then hey, Phoenix does decide to contact her telepathically. About time, Shadowcat. My outfit, my face. What the blazes? It's a long story. I'll tell you when I get home. Just wish it had a happier ending. Turns out you have no more pull chipotle than I do when it comes to extra guacamole. Mm-mm. Uh, just then, the three werewolves in human skins appear from the shadows. Yeah, the cop one, Ray, says, Talking to yourself, young miss. Sergeant Mulholland, we meet again. Popsy says, Bound to happen. Sweets like you. Jacko goes, Oh, shorts like us, been waiting. Most eagerly and impatiently. For this moment. Phoenix pipes in with, Kitty, what's going on? No problem, Ray. It's only the cop we met the other night. I see his image in your thoughts, but Kitty, I can't scan his. He's invisible to my psi power. Just then, all three folks puke up their shiny warwolf insides, leaving the skid suits behind like a pile of dirty laundry, which, strictly speaking, I suppose that's really all it is at this point. It's very true. <laughs> Wait, I'm quick. Till we've got all we came for. And that, sweetheart, is you. Phoenix pipes in again. Kitty, run for it. I'll be okay. My phasing power will protect me. A werewolf swipes through Shadowcat's head, and it seems to affect her. Phoenix comes screaming into the scene at high speed, tackling the werewolf that swiped Kitty and pushing the two of them into some kind of factory warehouse place. In the fracas, Phoenix loses her grip on the werewolf and then, and then smashes into a large overhead pipe, which dumps some kind of translucent orange goo on her that keeps Phoenix stuck in place for a moment. Meanwhile, the werewolves collect Shadowcat for removal, thinking she is Phoenix. Even though Phoenix clearly just blasted one of them into an old warehouse down the block, I mean, it just happened a second ago. You know, you just think they would, happened. but okay. <laughs> the fourth werewolf goes, You have a lifetime contract with our boss Mojo, you naughty girl. Ain't ethical, ain't right to break it. He made you a star in our dimension. Like it or not, you're gonna shine. Phoenix watches Shattercat being taken away from her gelatinous prison. Yes, Phoenix thinks to herself, ethical, right, bull, I was a slave, and I'll never be one again, no matter what the cost. Kitty, phase free of them. And she thinks to herself, I'm trying, but when the warwolf hit me, 
I felt it somehow. He scrambled my powers. I'm stuck. And Phoenix uses all of her might to break free of this viscous goo that's got her trapped. Hang on. What is this stuff? And what'll it take to let me go, go out? And it does let her go with a splutter. Delightful. Uh, looks like the werewolves have figured out that something ain't right here. As they gather up Kitty and her their assorted skins, they surmise that they'll figure things out eventually. Also, there's that four werewolf hanging with them yeah, now. He just showed up. The popsy one says, "What's the story?" Snaky, snaky. Then Jacko goes, "One Kitty acts like Phoenix. The other looks like her. So we grab both." The Ray Warwolf says, "If this one ain't the real thing." You've got yourself a skin. That fourth werewolf goes, Oh, fine. Oh, great. Terrific. Don't I even get a choice? Now Nightcrawler bamps into the place and says, You leave her alone, you monsters. And Ray says, Make us fuzzy face. That's uncalled for. Right. Uh, the werewolf slaps Nightcrawler away, and they make off through a tunnel while Megan catches him. Leave me, Megan. Stop those werewolves. They have kitty. Too late. Captain Britain shows up, finally. Finally. Sorry to be late, team. Took a minute to find a place to change into costume. Megan goes, It was those awful werewolves, Brian. They kidnapped Kitty. Phoenix goes, Believing she was me. She thought her phasing power would protect her. Only something went wrong and it didn't. And now she's their prisoner. Nightcrawler says, Only until we rescue her, my friends. Unless they turn her into a werewolf first. Isn't it more like a werewolf will wear her skin like an Easter Bunny costume? Isn't that how it works, <laughs> I think? Uh, and then the final caption says, next, a werewolf possessed. Mm-hmm. Ooh, boy, that stretched our very poor uh, abilities to do British, <laughs> British and voices. European accents. I got to say, you know, <laughs> I wondered how we do, and I would give us an F, both of us. That was very, very poor. F in plus, both of our... F plus. F plus, that's right. We, we got an, 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 a D plus for effort. <laughs> but, uh, you know, hopefully everyone understood it, and, uh, you know, we had a good time uh, giving yeah. it a shot. We do like our uh, classic BBC comedies, so we tried to uh, <laughs> dredge up some of those, but we're going to take a little break right now, and when we come back, we'll tell you more about Chris Claremont, Alan Davis, and Marvel UK Comics. So, I've got a few phrases, a few slang words, and a few just things which you would hear a lot in England um, and other parts of the UK, and they are really useful for you if you like to travel, if you like British English. There could be all kinds of reasons why you might need to know these phrases, but these are the most useful and the most commonly used British sayings and phrases. So first up, we have the most common phrase of all of them, and this is simply just by saying, all right? It basically means, hello, how are you? It's our way, our little way of saying hi to each other in England. If I see my parents, or if I see one of my friends, or even my girlfriend, I might just say, all right? And that is just a way of saying hello. If you said this to, uh, let's say, an American person or somebody who doesn't know British English, this could be a little bit confusing for them. Um, And the reason why is because all right is usually a word we say when we ask someone, are you all right? And that is like saying, how are you? Are you feeling okay? Is something wrong? If you said it to someone who lives outside of Britain and doesn't have 
that kind of British culture, they might not understand that you're trying to say hello. But it's really, really useful to know if you're coming to England or if you like the British language. Now, a lot of you know this next one, and it's probably another one of the most common British phrases. And this is just the word cheers. Cheers is a word we use when we toast, when we hit our glasses together when we have a drink. A lot of you know this one, and it's also a way of saying thank you. So if somebody did me a favor, if somebody did something for me, um, let's say I asked someone to make me a cup of tea, please, of course. They go and make the tea. They come back and bring the tea to me. I might say, Cheers. Just a way of saying thank you. Really easy, really simple word to learn, and it will impress people when you use it, especially if you're not a native speaker. Another obvious word we have is the word mate. Now, this is used in England, this is used in Australia, this is used in a few other places, and it's simply just a way of saying my friend. Um, so we could combine two of these words that we've learned already. We could say, all right, mate. And that's like saying, hello, my friend, how are you? You can also say, cheers, mate. And that's like saying, thank you, my friend. So we can combine these words together as well, which is really good. So those are the really kind of simple ones. Now I'm going to go into ones which you may have not heard before, but they are used a lot, especially if you're in England. So let's say somebody is talking to me, but I'm not really understanding what they're talking about. They're maybe talking about something which is a little bit too confusing for me, or I just don't really get what they're talking about. I might say to them, what are you on about? That's what are you on about? What it means is, what are you talking about? I don't understand what you are talking about. What are you on about? Now, this word I recommend you use with probably friends only or family or somebody close to you. And um, essentially what this means is it's another way of telling someone to move up, make space for me. So let's say I'm getting on a bus and the seats are very close together on the bus. And my friend and I are getting on the bus together and there's not much space, it's quite cramped. I would say to my friend, can you budge up, please? Or just budge up. And this is just telling your friend to move up, move along the seat, so I can sit down and so there's some space for me. But I do recommend that you only use this with your friends, mainly because if you went and sat on a bus and there was someone taking up a lot of space and you told them to budge up, they might take it offensively and you might end up getting thrown off the bus. So I would just be careful with who you use some of these phrases with, particularly that one. In one of my recent videos, I did say about how I was feeling very tired. I said that I'm, I'd stayed up late and I wasn't really feeling very awake that day because I'd stayed up late. And the reason why was because I was knackered. Knackered. It has a funny spelling. It doesn't really sound how it's spelt. But then that's kind of what most of the English language seems to be like anyway. But knackered, this means I'm tired. But it means I'm really tired. You know, I need to sleep. So if you say I'm knackered, this will score you loads of points with English speakers because they will be amazed that you know this word. 
So when you're speaking with a British person and you're feeling tired, tell them you're feeling knackered. It's a good one. The next one is gutted. And this is a good one. I use this one a lot. Really, all it means is that you're quite annoyed or upset. So let me put it in an example again. Let's say you're really annoyed about something. Something's happened and it's really annoyed you. And it's made you feel kind of down, upset, not happy. You would say, I'm gutted. You can say, I'm gutted about that. Or I'm gutted to hear that. Or you can just simply say, I'm gutted. And it basically just means I'm really annoyed, I'm really down, and it's it's annoying. Hello, governors. Yo. We are back. And, hello, uh, love. Hello. hello. <laughs> and uh, we're, we're going to get a lot of hate for that. Uh, we're going to talk about more Chris Claremont. Now, Claremont would leave Excalibur with issue 34. That's February 1991, cover date. At which point, Alan Davis returned to draw and write the series for a brief time. The first volume of Excalibur lasted 125 issues. That was uh, ending in October 1998, cover date. Alan Davis had moved to draw mostly the covers, uh, and uh, even towards the end, not even that. No. Um, now, Claremont, along with artist Frank Miller, did that Wolverine Limited series in 1982. Uh, with artist Walt Simonson, Claremont produced The Uncanny X-Men and The New Teen Titans in 1982, an intercompany crossover between the top-selling Marvel and DC titles. Uh, the New Mutants were introduced by Claremont and Bob McCloud in Marvel Graphic Novel Number 4 that had a December 1982 covered it, and they would receive their own ongoing series uh, soon after that would run 100 issues. Uh, Claremont helped launch the Marvel Fanfare title in March 1982. He also produced with Brent Anderson the original graphic novel God Loves Man Kills. Also 1982, a very, very busy year. He really did a lot that year, yeah. <laughs> prolific fella. Uh, now, besides his work on X-Men and its spin-offs, uh, Claremont wrote uh, Marvel Team-Up, Spider-Woman, and Ms. Marvel during this time. Uh, Claremont stories for Marvel Team-Up included the cast of NB NBC's Saturday Night Live appearing in issue number 74, October 1978 cover date. Yeah, that's a famous one. Uh, yes. In 1987, Claremont began writing genre novels. His first was a science fiction trilogy about female U.S. Air Force pilot astronaut Nicole Shea, consisting of First Flight, 1987, Grounded in 1991, and Sundowner in 1994, all published by Ace Books as mass-market editions. Claremont co-wrote the Chronicles of the Shadow War trilogy, Shadow Moon in 1995, Shadow Dawn in 1996, and Shadow Star in 1999, with George Lucas, which continued the story of Elora Denen from the movie Willow, which came out in 1988, directed by Ron Howard and produced by George Lucas. In 1991, Marvel launched a second X-Men title simply called X-Men with Claremont and penciler Jim Lee as co-writers. Issue number one, also known as the best-selling comic book of all time. Mm -hmm. Claremont left the series after the first three-issue story arc due to clashes with editor Bob Harris. He even left Marvel entirely in solidarity with the Image guys. In December 1991, he sent artist Wilson Pertasio a proposal to illustrate Claremont's project, The Huntsman, as a creator-owned project. When brand new startup comics publisher Image Comics was announced in 1992, Claremont was named as one of its founders. However, The Huntsman was canceled when Portacio decided instead to do wet works. Claremont, eventually. Eventually, he actually <laughs> took a year off because he had a health issue too. His uh, family, yeah. That's right, in his family. Uh, Claremont attempted to find uh, another, another artist for the series, but all those in whom he was interested were either drawing X-Men 
or had their own projects with Image, and thus he did not become one of Image's founders. In 1992, Chris wrote the graphic novel Star Trek Dead of Honor, which uh, was illustrated by Adam Hughes. In 1993, he began writing the 12-issue miniseries Aliens Predator, colon, Deadliest of the Species for Dark Horse Comics, which was completed in 1995. In 1994, he uh, would reunite with Jim Lee, and he wrote issues 10 through 13 of Lee and Brian Choi's series Wildcats at Image Comics, in which he finally introduced his creator-owned character, The Huntsman. In uh, 1995, Claremont began writing his creator-owned series Sovereign 7, which was published by DC Comics and ran for 36 issues until 1998. Also in 1998, Claremont would finally return to Marvel as an editorial director and as the regular writer for Fantastic Four. And he'd also write a really, really uh, bad Wolverine story arc as well. I wonder if he still has the title of editorial director or something. You know, I th- I know he's still he's still part of the company. He, he is uh, still employed. Yeah, yeah well, we'll, we'll get to that at the end, but uh, yeah. I just wonder if he has a title there, but who knows. I wonder. <laughs> uh, in 2000, as part of the company's revolution event, he wrote Uncanny X-Men and X-Men until he moved to Extreme X-Men, which is spelled the correct X-way, X-Treme. Yes. With penciler Salvador LaRocca. Chris returned to Uncanny X Men again for a two year run starting in 2004 while teaming up with his former Excalibur collaborator and artist Alan Davis. In 2004, Claremont was co writer on JLA issues 94 to 99, the 10th Circle story arc for DC Comics, which reunited him with his former Uncanny X Men artist John Byrne, which was a big deal. Also, brought the Doom Patrol back to, to yep. DC. For better or for worse. Uh, definitely for worse at the time. But anyway, <laughs> uh, in 2007, Claremont returned to Excalibur to write New Excalibur, which ran for 24 issues. And in 2008, Claremont wrote the miniseries Gen X, followed by a 2009 sequel, Gen X United. He was the writer of an X-Men Forever series, which was set in an alternate universe, and it focused on the present-day lives of the X-Men in a reality where Magneto never returned following the destruction of Asteroid M in X-Men number three from December 1991, cover date. Yeah, it was basically what if Chris Claremont never stopped writing X-Men. So <laughs> yeah. it picked up, it, it really, it picked up right after that X-Men three. It's finally the one he walked away from. Yeah, that's it. So. Yeah, and uh, it was, you know, sometimes you do things to be different just to be different. And yeah. It, Kind of feels like I'm going to say it's not your favorite run. Right no, there. it's pretty It's pretty <laughs> much not. Uh, in 2010, uh, Claremont would collaborate with Italian comics artist Milo Minara on a book called X-Women. In uh, July 2011, Claremont signed a deed of gift to Columbia University's Rare Book and Manuscript Library, donating his archives of all his major writing projects over the past 40 years to the library's graphic novel collection. After it's all been examined and cataloged, Claremont's archive will be housed at the Butler Library, separate from the graphic novel collection, and it will be open to anyone who uh, demonstrates a need for its use. As of 2014, Claremont was under an exclusive contract for Marvel. In April of that year, Marvel launched a Nightcrawler series with Claremont as writer, which uh, wrapped up in March 2015. Yeah, and I don't think he's written anything since, but I do believe he is still under that contract. But yeah, uh, we're not his accountants, so we can't <laughs> no. guarantee it. <laughs> Now, uh, to wrap up for Alan Davis, he left Excalibur with issue 24 due to deadline pressures, but returned with issue 42, this time, as we said, also as a writer. During this second run, according to Davis, editor Terry Cavanaugh spoiled me, gave me near total freedom, and encouraged me to experiment. Among the new characters he created for this run in the title were Ferron, Cerise, Micromax, and Kylan. 
1991, Davis reunited with writer Mike Barr to draw the sequel to Year Two, The One-Shot, Batman colon Full Circle. In 1994, Davis created a new series of original characters called The Clandestine, which featured the Destines, a family of long-lived, magically-powered British superhumans. Davis wrote and penciled the title for the first eight issues. He departed after issue eight, and the series was canceled with issue 12. In 1996, Davis wrote and drew the two-issue crossover miniseries, X-Men and the Clandestine. During much of the 1990s, Davis drew many of Marvel and DC Comics' major characters and titles, including JLA The Nail, which is an Elseworld series, and The Avengers. Uh, he was also commissioned to write both main X-Men series in 1999. He also provided art for adjectiveless X-Men as well. Uh, he left the following year. Uh, he was, I think he was actually replaced by Claremont at that point. Oh, uh, wow. And uh, Claremont, yeah, rumor, <laughs> rumor has it that uh, Claremont actually ghost wrote a few of those issues as well. I, that was I, a I think we, pretty we actually, big to do. I think we, we actually discussed that even in a different uh, episode. I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, starting in October 20, uh, 2002, he wrote and drew for Marvel Kill Raven. This is a six issue miniseries that revamped the title character from the 70s. After a return to Uncanny X Men, working again with Claremont. Davis wrote and drew in, 20, in 2006 through 2007 a six-issue Fantastic Four colon The End limited series for Marvel. In February 2008, Davis wrote and penciled a five-part clandestine miniseries and the one-shot Thor colon Truth of History for Marvel. And I'm not sure. I haven't seen him do interiors, but you do still see cover work. Yes. Uh, I have a feeling he works when he wants to is more or less what it is. I bet. Uh, but anyway, uh, let's talk about that Marvel UK we've been vacillating around this whole time. <laughs> uh, so this is pretty interesting stuff. Reprints of American Marvel material had been published in the UK during the 1960s by Odhams Press under their Power Comics imprint. Titles such as Smash and Fantastic featured a mix of Marvel reprint material and original non-Marvel work. This lasted until 1969 when the last superhero strip was removed from Smash, leaving no Marvel titles being reprinted in the UK at all. In 1972, seeing a gap in the UK comics market, Marvel Comics formed their own British publishing arm, Marvel UK, under the corporate name of Magazine Management London Limited. It rolls right off the tongue. It does. Uh, though publishing comics in the UK for a British audience, Marvel UK was under the editorial direction of Marvel's New York offices, overseen by young writer-editor Tony Isabella. Uh, starting with the mighty world of Marvel, Marvel UK started with black and white, though early issues did feature some color, reprints of the Hulk, Spider-Man, and the Fantastic Four. A few months later, Spider-Man Comics Weekly was released. This would reprint American Spider-Man material originally started in the mighty world of Marvel, with the adventures of Thor starting as a backup feature. The new title allowed an entire issue of the stateside series The Amazing Spider-Man to be reprinted every week in the UK publication. Uh, both of these initial series were huge successes and became the mainstays of the Marvel UK lineup. The Mighty World of Marvel, in one form or another, was published continuously until 1984, while the Spider-Man Weekly comic, under many different name changes, would continue until 1985. But those comics would change forms many times, we will many see. Many times. <laughs> uh, in 1973, Marvel UK launched The Avengers, starting with material from issue number four, which was a March 1964 cover date of the U.S. series, which reintroduced Captain America. Issues 1 through 3 of the Avengers had already been reprinted in the uh, World of Marvel comic. Doctor Strange was the backup feature here. 
The new title introduced glossy covers around a smaller 36-page comic, down from the previous 40-page format of MWOM and Spider-Man Comics Weekly. Glossy covers were to be a distinctive feature of Marvel UK weeklies until the Marvel Revolution in 1979. More on that in a few minutes. The other two titles also changed this new format, including the loss in page count to 32 pages. In Spider-Man Comics Weekly, the decrease to 36 pages, uh, 32 pages marked the reduction of Spider-Man material so that now only half a U.S. issue was reproduced in the U.K. Weekly and Iron Man was added to the lineup. In 1974, two new weeklies were introduced, uh, Dracula Lives and Planet of the Apes, the latter reprinting material from the black and white Marvel Monster Group brand. The, the Mar- Marvel Monster Group <laughs> brand. I can't even say that. Uh, in 1976, Dracula Lives was canceled and merged with Planet of the Apes as of issue 88. The Apes Adventures lasted until 1977, the final months as a co-feature with the Hulk in Mighty World of Marvel from issue 231. The non-superhero launches continued in, the early, in early 1975 as Savage Sword of Conan was added as a weekly title. In March 1975, Marvel UK launched a new weekly title called The Superheroes. Although it originally starred popular characters like Silver Surfer and the X-Men, it eventually began reprinting stories starring such obscure characters as Doc Savage, Ant-Man, The Cat, Scarecrow, and Bloodstone. That's right, that Marvel Scarecrow that we all mm-hmm. love so much. Uh, Marvel's Marvel UK's fifth superhero title, also debuting in October 1975, was The Titans, which was notable for its use of a landscape orientation. Although this format allowed two pages of Marvel US artwork to fit onto one Marvel UK page, <laughs> it made the text small and often difficult to read. I the, bet. I hear the sounds like a nightmare, <laughs> quite frankly. Uh, the Titans featured well-known characters like Captain America, Captain Marvel, the Submariner, and the, the Inhumans and Nick Fury. The superheroes lasted 50 issues before being canceled in early 1976, at which point it was merged into Spider-Man <laughs> Comics Weekly, which changed its title to Super Spider-Man with the Superheroes. <laughs> at this point, that book also changed orientation to become a landscape format comic like the Titans. The aforementioned Titan t- Titans title ran 58 issues until late 1976, when it too was canceled. Toward the end of its run, the Avengers were moved over from the mighty world of Marvel, to be the Titans lead strip. As with the superheroes, with the Titans cancellation, it was merged with the weekly Spider-Man comic, which changes title again to Super Spider-Man and the Titans. Uh, you can imagine this would frustrate some British fans of Marvel comics, right? I mean, you can't follow a storyline yeah. to save your life here. You jump. No, from... you don't know where it's you're going. It's unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> Marvel UK began to establish itself as a major publisher of weekly comic titles under the direction of editor in chief Neil Tennant, who would later be one of the Pet Shop Boys. Hey. Uh, yeah, about that. Tennant was responsible for anglicizing the dialogue of the comics to suit British readers and for indicating where women needed to be redrawn more decently for the British editions. With the exception of some new covers drawn by Marvel Comics' American staff, no original material had yet been produced by Marvel UK. That is until 1976 when Captain Britain Weekly was launched. 
Captain Britain Weekly featured new stories in color, as well as reprints of Nick Fury and Fantastic Four strips as a backup. Uh, it was initially a success, but eventually combined with UK uh, Marvel UK's Spider-Man Comics Weekly from issue number 39. Of course. I mean, I, I, I feel like this Spider-Man Comics Weekly, I, I can't believe it's still 32 pages. It's got to be like 109 <laughs> pages at this point. <laughs> They're all like thumbnails. Yeah, now we can fit six pages on one page. <laughs> now, it was Neil Tennant's suggestion to create the an original British Marvel war comic to compete with UK magazines such as Warlord and Battle Picture Weekly. While no original material was commissioned, the concept of a war comic found fruition as Fury, which ran from March to August 1977 before merging with the mighty world of Marvel. <laughs> it uh, reprinted Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos and Captain Savage and his Leatherneck Raiders. So Tennant left in 1977 to form the Pet Shop Boys, I would think, and was replaced by Nick Lang. In early 1978, Lang oversaw the launch of Marvel UK's Star Wars weekly title soon after the film was released in the UK. The weekly issues split the stories from the US monthly issues into smaller installments, and usually took three weekly issues to complete a US monthly issue. In May 1980, the title became known as The Empire Strikes Back Weekly, and in November 1980, it transformed into a monthly publication. The format changed back into a weekly in June 1983 with the adaptation of Return of the Jedi, which also became the name of the new of the publication, <laughs> and remained so until the, its last issue in 1986. Prior to the Return of the Jedi comic, the strips in the UK Star Wars comics were printed in black and white, and even those taken from the American color versions had been done in grayscale. Uh, the UK comics also reprinted several other supporting strips in each issue from other Marvel properties, such as the Micronauts, Tales of the Watcher, Star-Lord, and other space-type themed stuff like that. While the comic was in a weekly format, the supporting strips often made the bulk of each issue. By the late 1970s, sales of Marvel UK titles had begun to fall, and it was on a visit to England that Stan Lee headhunted Des Skin to revamp the ailing company. Now we've discussed Deskin uh, pretty deeply in Weird Comics History episode 27. That's part one of our three-part Exploring the Mysteries of Marvel Man series, and that's available for you in the archives. Uh, but the short of it is that he was a sub-editor for International Publishing Corporation, that's IPC Magazines, a subsidiary of Time Incorporated from 1970 through 1975. He was hired from IPC by Warner Brothers to edit a UK-focused NAD magazine. That was from 1975 through 78. And then Stanley hired him to head up Marvel UK. Uh, Skin had his own catchphrase in Des Says, which was inspired by Lee's catchphrases, Excelsior and Face Front True Believers from the 60s. Knowing Skin had experience in British comic publishing, Lee gave him freedom to do what he felt best. Skin set out to change Marvel UK as he saw fit, dubbing the changes the Marvel Revolution. Taking over in late 1978, the first major change he brought was to have original material produced by British creators. In an interview with uh, Skin in 2011, he says, Traditional British comics were at the time selling 150000 plus a week. Firm sale, no returns. If Marvel and Spider-Man could look British enough for some of that to rub off, everyone would be happy. But fixing the covers to resemble that non-glossy, generic look of weekly anthology titles was one thing. Having splash pages and then five or six frames a page just didn't stack up against Warlord, Action, Battle, and the rest with their line up, with their, less with their nine to twelve a page. It's interesting, yeah, the, the whole yeah. panel layout was just unfamiliar just to British. Yeah, totally. and, they, and, and they looked at they saw it as a ripoff, you know, like I'm not getting enough uh, panel. Enough story, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Skin reasoned that Marvel superhero weeklies have been effectively 
competing with each other in an already crowded market. While the Spider-Man comic was to be the flagship superhero comic with Thor, Iron Man, Avengers, Fantastic Four, and Nova, <laughs> the mighty world of Marvel was relaunched as a Marvel, as Marvel comic in the model of more traditional British boys' adventure magazines. Dracula, Conan the Barbarian, and Skull the Slayer joined or rejoined established strips <laughs> Daredevil and Hulk. Although the Hulk was replaced three issues uh, after the relaunch by Godzilla because... Rampage Weekly, which starred the Defenders, had already been added to Marvel's list of publication under Tennant's editorship as a second vehicle for the Hulk, who now had his own TV series, that was The Incredible Hulk, on ran on CBS for 82 episodes from November 77 to May 1982. Skin saw the Hulk as the lead feature of another adventure-style comic. Hulk comic, good title. Uh, starting out with originally produced Hulk stories by Steve Dillon, Paul Neary, and John Stokes, among others. These reflected the green-skin behemoth as depicted on the television. Skin explained, as with Marvel comic, I was wanting an adventure anthology title more than a superhero one. Superheroes had never been big sellers in the UK. We had plenty of legends of the past to spin fantasies about. So I went that route, picking existing Marvel characters who weren't really cut from the superhero cloth. Yeah, they they actually not too long ago released the uh, the Hulk from the UK vault uh, trade paperback. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty neat. Um, now, originally produced stories were included, such as Nick Fury drawn by Steve Dillon and Night Raven by Steve Parkhouse and David Lloyd. Also included was the Black Knight, a Marvel a Marvel character revamped to take in Arthurian concepts and featured the return of Captain Britain from comic book Limbo. There was still the usual U.S. reprint material, such as Ant-Man, and then later issues The Beast from Amazing Adventures, and even The Defenders uh, were moved from moved in from Rampage Monthly in order to increase a dose of uh, Hulk action. Uh, house ads showed a stern doctor holding out a handful of pills and saying, boredom is a sickness, and there's only one cure, more Hulk action. <laughs> <laughs> Probably Skin's most important decision was to launch Doctor Who Weekly in 1979, which, of course, is based on the popular BBC TV series, which at that point had already been running for 16 years. Uh, Doctor Who Weekly featured original comic stories by John Wagner, uh, Pat Mills, and Dave Gibbons, among many others, plus articles and features on the show itself. It proved a huge success, and by now, Skin had transformed Marvel UK back to being a major publisher of not just weekly weekly comics, but monthly titles, such as the science fiction magazine Starburst. Starburst had been created by Skin before he joined Marvel UK, but was purchased by Marvel upon his hiring. Convenient, that. I mean, I think it actually ended when he left, but, uh, <laughs> Probably. In March 1980, Skin launched the Marvel Pocket Books line with four 52-page titles bound to straight paperbacks, though a little taller than most American trim sizes. Actually, perfect for pockets, if you saw them. That looks <laughs> like you could slip right into your coat pocket. Uh, the line began with Spider-Man, the Fantastic Four, Star Heroes, which featured a TV tie-in, Battlestar Galactica, and the Micronauts continued that from continued from their previous run in Star Wars <laughs> Weekly. So if you wanted to follow them, you had to switch to a whole new format. And Chiller, uh, another book starring Dracula and the Man-Thing, with an occasional appearance from other horror-related characters. Following Skin's belief that much of Marvel's strongest material that was published in the 1960s and early 70s uh, that was their strongest stuff. Many of these titles showcase strips from that period. The first four titles were later joined by Hulk, the Titans, reprinting the 1960s stories of Captain America, Thor, and Iron Man, Marvel Classics Comics featuring comic book adaptations of classic literature, Conan, and Young Romance. 
Some titles were not a success in terms of sales. Hulk, Conan, The Titans, Marvel Classics, Comics, and Young Romance were canceled after 13 issues, while Star Heroes, which had replaced the Micronauts with the original X-Men from issue number 10, was relaunched as X-Men Pocketbook from number 14, <laughs> issue number 14. All other pocketbooks were canceled after issue 28 in July-August 1982. Skin was not happy with how creators were treated in regard to ownership of characters, so he left Marvel UK in 1980, eventually forming Quality Communications in 1982. Again, check out those episodes of Weird Comics History for the rest of his story. Uh, the Hulk strips continued in a newly launched uh, The Incredible Hulk Weekly, and similarly, the classic Fantastic Four strips resurfaced in a weekly title in October 1982. Both of these eventually folded into Spider-Man Comics Weekly, aye, aye, aye. where the strips continued <laughs> on and off until it changed into the Spider-Man comic aimed at younger readers. Yeah, I mean, it's important to say, too, this doesn't mean you would get Fantastic Four every week. Yeah. It would sometimes be in there when they could jam it in there. Uh, <laughs> the classic Spider-Man material continued in the first few issues of... The Daredevils. <laughs> <laughs> now, with Skin's departure, Bernie J took over as Marvel UK's editor-in-chief. In September 1981, Captain Britain got his own strip in the pages of The Mighty World of Marvel, by then firmly established as a monthly title under the name Marvel Superheroes, as written by Dave Thorpe and drawn by Alan Davis. Thorpe would leave in 1982 and be replaced by Alan Moore in uh, one of uh, Moore's first major ongoing titles. In October 1981, inspired by the success of its Doctor Who title, Marvel UK began publishing the monthly Blake 7 title, edited by Stuart Wales. Now, Blake 7 was a British science fiction television series broadcast on BBC One between 1978 and 1981. As the television series itself went off the air in late 1981, the magazine itself lasted less than two years. Uh, despite a flurry of new weeklies post-skin, including Forces in Combat, Marvel Team-Up, Future Tense, and Valor, uh, with O-U-R, mm -hmm. uh, by 1982, Marvel UK moved mainly to monthly titles such as The Daredevils, which featured Alan's Moore and Davis's Captain Britain. Uh, now, many of Marvel UK's titles, however, wouldn't last long before being combined or canceled outright due to poor sales. Jay would leave the company in 1983. In January 1985, the first issue of the Captain Britain Monthly appeared with his titular strip written by Jamie, Jamie Delano and drawn by Alan Davis. The title lasted 14 issues before cancellation and would prove to be Marvel UK's last major new title for several years. New material was still being produced, such as the Zoid stories written by Grant Morrison for Secret Wars, uh, which was a UK series, not the Secret <laughs> Wars that we know of, and uh, Spider-Man and Zoids, but yes. not on this scale or extent previously seen. For the remainder of the 1980s, the company published only a small handful of titles that appealed to superhero fans, but had considerable success on the UK newsstands with licensed titles, such as the real Ghostbusters, Thundercats, and Transformers, and others. These all featured original strips as well as some U.S. reprints. Transformers, in particular, was a major seller for Marvel UK, selling 200,000 copies a week at its height and running for 332 issues. <laughs> this was a weekly, remember, though. Yes. Uh, its main writer, Simon Furman, would eventually take over the Marvel U.S. version of the title as well and continues to work on the franchise to this day for the U.K.'s Titan Comics. From 1988, it was the real Ghostbusters that became the top seller. This ran for 193 issues, four annuals, and a Slimer spinoff, and its characters were used to anchor several other titles like Wicked and the Marvel Bumper comic. 
The Sleaze Brothers, which ran from 1989 to 1990, was a creator-owned title by John Carl and Andy Lanning. And Steve White launched the first critically acclaimed volume, Knights of Knights of Pendragon, which ran from 1990 to 1991, written by Dan Abnett and John Tomlinson, with art by Gary Erskine, Erskine, which mixed superheroes and Arthurian myth. It also featured Captain Britain, among other Marvel Comics heroes, such as Iron Man. Now, by 1990, Marvel had told its UK branch that long miniseries were too expensive and they should produce four-issue minis instead. Uh, Writer-editor John Freeman recalled, Some legal or distribution restriction in the U.S. on publishing three-part miniseries, which the company would have preferred, uh, that that would try out new characters. Uh, John Freeman and Dan Abnett first wanted to, among other initiatives, spin off Doctor Who's magazine's Absalom Dak? Uh, Sure. Sure. Uh, pardon us. I, I, I'm not into We're not doctor. big movies here. <laughs> yeah, sorry. That's the word. Uh, but uh, a person in there from named Absalom Dak as an original character. Uh, this was dropped as Marvel felt Doctor Who was a, quote, dead franchise. And there was no value to Marvel in seeking to extend a brand they did not they did not themselves own. Which uh, might be a Oops. bad thing looking back. Yeah, looking know. at that now, but uh, you know. <laughs> uh, Paul Neary became Marvel UK's editor in chief around 1990, appointed to revamp the company and make another attempt at the U.S. market. As a stopgap, he had two short-lived reprint titles created: Havoc and Meltdown. The latter of which reprinted Akira. Uh, the U.S. format titles began with Death's Head 2, a recreation of Simon Furman, Simon Furman's Cyborg Bounty Hunter. Titles such as Warheads, which worm, which featured wormhole-hopping mercenaries, Motormouth, which was later called Motormouth and Kill Power, about a streetwise girl and, es- and escaped genetically modified super assassin. They hop around the universe having adventures, as well as the second volume of Knights of Pendragon. The titles were set in the existing Marvel Universe, but with more of a focus on cyberpunk science fiction and magic than traditional superhero fare. These were all linked by plots featuring the organization organization Ms. Tech, a shadowy group of Faustians bent on world domination. Some of these titles were also reprinted in the UK anthology Overkill. At some point during Neary's run, but before the market crash, Marvel UK was running low on money. They requested an emergency meeting with Marvel Entertainment executives Bill Bevan and Terry Stewart to approve a £1 million last-ditch strategy. While they got the money, Marvel The Untold Story writer Sean Howe would later be told that Bevan was livid about being called to London for a mere $1 million, asking, Why are you wasting my time? <laughs> Neary instituted a deliberate policy to feature Marvel U.S. guest stars in the Marvel U.K. stories. They would only be featured, however, on 11 pages and these pages were designed to be able to be cut from the main story, and the remaining pages without the guest star were run in the anthology Overkill. This policy was dropped after market research that included watching a group of teenagers rip Overkill apart from behind a two-way mirror, according to Freeman, showed people that expected to see U.S. heroes in Marvel Comics. The worm had finally turned. Mm-hmm. Where U.S. Marvel characters were featured, all the storylines were approved by the American editor in charge of that book. Uh, some of the more respect, well, some of some were more responsive than others to the outlines, with editors such as Bobby Chase offering useful feedback for Marvel UK's editors. Uh, very few Marvel U.S. comics referenced any of the original characters or major events that occurred within the Marvel UK comics, with the exception being the Incredible Hulk issue 408, August 1993 uh, cover date, which featured Kill Power, Motor. Mouth and 
the Loch Ness Monster. Hey, I'm a very British, very British. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, in the U.S., these comics were initially immensely successful, with some issues being reprinted to keep up with the demand. Uh, Marvel UK massively uh, expanded, and trading cards were made of their characters. Ooh, they, now right there was the point when I was like, uh-oh. Trading yeah, cards. Something. This is going. This isn't going to end well. Yeah. <laughs> this will not end well for anyone. Uh, during this flush period, editor in chief Tom DeFalco requested they make a new hero called Red Squirrel Man. For some reason, we don't know. All right, fine. Sure. Uh, an entire sub imprint called Frontier Comics was created in 1993, patterning itself after DC's Vertigo Comics. Marvel UK even showed up at the Lord Mayor's show in 1993 with staff members dressed as superheroes. And Death's Head, too. Uh, the Lord Mayor's Show is one of the best-known annual events in London, as well as the, one of the longest established, dating back to the 16th century. The Lord Mayor, after whom the show is named, is the Lord Mayor of the City of London. A new Lord Mayor is appointed every year, and the public parade that takes place at as his, and her, as his or her inauguration ceremony reflects the importance of this position. But I think it's actually like a token position because there is another mayor that isn't doesn't who's, elect who's every a, year. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, but help us, Brits, help us. We don't, you know, <laughs> don't really understand. But anyway, We're blind. Uh, despite a lineup that included Liam Sharp, Simon Colby, Brian Hitch, Carlos Pacheco, Graham Marks, Salvador La Roca, Dan Abnett, and many others, too many titles were launched too quickly in a market that was already swamped. Yeah. In late 1993, Marvel UK would be devastated by the comics market crash. On September 29th, their new director of sales, Lou Bank, reported that they were being hurt by an adequate display of product at retail that has hindered sale-through, and that it has failed because there was simply no room to display all the comics being made. Dark Guard, Cyberspace 3000, Wild Thing, Black Axe, Super Soldiers, and the entire Frontier imprint were canceled. A large number of projects in the works, from those just proposed to some that had been solicited, were also canceled. The Red Mist 2020 crossover was killed so late that Roid Rage No. 1, a Super Soldier spinoff, was canceled while at the printer. Hmm. Mark Harrison's Loose Cannons was canceled shortly before it was meant to run, January 1994, despite being almost complete. He later released all this online. Paul Neary told Comic World that this was a trimming of fat to allow Marvel UK to focus its marketing efforts on our strongest characters and claim the canceled projects would see the light of day in 1994. Two titles that did still run were spinoffs of Death's Head 2 in November, with house ads comparing them to other popular image-conscious comics as part mm. of a marketing strategy to portray the new Marvel UK as a lean, hungry company that could hold its own. In 1994, Marvel UK had ceased publishing in the U.S. market and was now only printing a handful of titles, mostly reprints for the U.K. market, as well as licensed titles like that long-running Doctor Who magazine. Uh, Death's Head 2 was canceled at issue number 16, of which distributor Capital only sold 7,400 copies. In 1994, that's unheard of. That sounds like a great sale these days, but yeah, not then. (laughs) Not then. Neary planned a relaunch that would have included Captain Britain and a new character that would have been involved a, that would have involved a superhero in the 1950s working for the Queen Mother, but it never happened. No. 
With the failure of its U.S. titles, the company's assets were bought by Panini Comics, uh, who had been part of Marvel Europe and had already been reprinting American material across Europe for several years. Casualties of the merger included editor-in-chief Paul Neary and managing director Victor Conran. Uh, thanks to this licensing deal, uh, reprints of American Marvel Comics material continued to be published in the UK by Panini in the mid-1990s. They continued printing two existing Marvel UK titles, that's Astonishing Spider-Man this time, and Essential X-Men, and follows the continuity of the US comics, though approximately two or three years behind current uh, current stories. Yeah. Uh, each book contained approximately two or three Marvel U.S. strips in one issue, with possibly a classic comic printed as a substitute for a comic in the current run. In addition to this, Panini continued Doctor Who magazine. And Panini started publishing a monthly, which later was every three weeks, oversized comic titled The Spectacular Spider-Man. To a, this accompanied Spider-Man the Animated Series, which began broadcasting in the U.K. in the mid-1990s. Initially, these stories were simply reprints of the U.S. comics based on the series, but eventually the title moved to all new U.K.-originated stories, making the first Marvel U.K. material featuring classic Marvel characters to be produced since early 1994. But eventually, the Marvel U.K. logo itself was dropped, and one of the final comics to have it was a licensed Rugrats comic in May 1996, and now it's just Marvel... In the UK, not Marvel, yes. not Marvel UK, and and now, I mean, what's so interesting about that whole story is, it was just them compensating for the lack of a direct market that now allows them to sure. have the comics the same day we get them, you know, or some, some sort of a, I don't know if they get them on Wednesday, but whatever. I think they do. We usually see all those uh, UK yeah, digital, digital, yeah, yeah. Uh, and digital. Yeah, that's right. Like they get them right away. So. uh yeah, this is this. It's really interesting. This this whole thing too, Chris. It reminded me of uh, when we were learning about manga uh, yeah. publishers and how they like just repurpose material any which way. And if they got to switch, <laughs> they got they, they got to switch gears into another format. They'll do it. You know what I mean? No whatever, problem. Whatever they got to do to continue the story. And this is, I mean, I could just imagine the. Fr- I mean, you know, you're a guy with a lot of comic boxes. Imagine if your format went from comic book to paperback a magazine suddenly or paperback you know, or a totally different book. Like, yeah what would you i don't wow. know how you to do it you have to keep them in some ugly stack at the end of your desk or something like that <laughs> it's about the size of it it's a it's very interesting because like we went from weeklies to monthlies back again yeah i mean how often do you go to your what is it a news agent over there right that's exactly, how often yeah. do you go it's yeah. like do you go every week just in case and you pretty much have to buy it's, everything because you never know where your story is going where your story is going to continue you know? and, 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 and it sounds to me like you pick up that spider Man Weekly, it might not have any Spider-Man oh, in it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> might only be Spider-Man in the cover. It's all Thor and Hulk and everything else in the middle. Uh, and Doctor Who. Really interesting. But, but you know, going through this, we did the best we could to, to figure a lot of it out. We left out uh, some uh, popular British characters. They were just too sure. far out there for us to yeah, understand. Tr- trying to keep it as linear as possible. It, for, yeah, <laughs> really. Yeah, trying, trying to like, you know, We just didn't follow. give us much to work with. But, uh, you know, if you are from the UK, have memories of those books, we would love to hear about, uh, you know, your your thoughts on them and your experiences picking them up from the news agents, if that's what you did. But uh, we I did don't know get... a whole lot about it, because I, I, I've listened to some shows, some podcasts from, uh, from the UK, and, yeah. uh, like, one of the things that always stuck out to me is that the annuals were, like, big hardcover collections. Yep. 
They are. And, uh, and like they, they'd be like the Christmas gift for the year. It's uh, and, and looking at the annuals we get now, it's like, wow, that's actually something worth holding on to. Oh, I mean, I mean the annuals now are, are forgetting nothing yeah. at all. There's no point to them. But, uh, yeah, you know, I, I was uh, in London not too long ago. Yes, And, and I went and got uh, actually Bino and Dan Dare annuals Andy. because I was there. <laughs> and they're all – and actually I got Viz, which is a humor magazine. All hardcover, yeah. They all they yep. make a thing out of it where they want you. It's it's once again we we got to pull it right back to the comics code where elsewhere in the world the idea of having a comic book on your bookshelf is not crazy. It's yeah. only something that's become, you know, not weird in America re- more recently, recently. You know, but for yeah. years it was that was kid stuff. Why would you? ever put a comic next to a prose book uh so yeah it's 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 really is a whole different culture and to be honest i would not mind delving back in and, and really trying to dig out some uh more details oh, of this i stuff. think we're gonna have to for we're gonna sure, we're yeah. gonna have to especially if someone wants to recommend a uh, judge dread comic we'll be right back into it <laughs> absolutely but uh yeah i mean we could go on for days on 2018 oh, and all that. that will certainly be its own weird comics history episode yes I think. i'm a, sure that's, that's an expanded <laughs> Long history that is still being written. That comic is that magazine is still out and very well uh, respected. But uh, speaking of our correspondence, we did get some lovely correspondence, didn't we, Chris? We did. We did from our friend Jeremiah Jones Goldstein or Goldstein. I, you got to tell me which way to say it because yeah, I think I say it both ways. Yeah. Uh, he starts, Chris Reggie. I listened to the new episode straight away. Couldn't save it for work tomorrow. You both. He's talking about the Gru the Bar the, the right. Gru the Wanderer. Uh, you both did a great job with it. The character bios were top notch. The history of Pacific Comics was very informative, and the brief history of Barbarians was cool. I wanted to thank you for doing an episode on something I picked. It was a ton of fun. It was a ton of fun for us as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Uh, he says, thanks for the plug on the blog. I, I knew nothing about Pacific Comics, so it was great to learn about that. The Welcome Back Cotter episode was, an, was also another classic. I particularly liked the discussion on the changes in TV programming during that period. Many of those shows are stuff I grew up watching, mostly in syndication. You guys should do more New York-based comics. <laughs> really stretch the New York accents that you both do so well. Oh, maybe we'll have a Newsboy Legion in our future or something. <laughs> uh, he continues, I honestly never had heard Charlie Angels and Wonder Woman referred to as Jiggle TV. My mom must have been aware of it, though, because I can remember being pretty young and Charlie's Angels coming on one night and my mom <laughs> making me change the channel because that was not something I should be watching. I'm looking forward to the JLA May episode next week, which actually was several weeks ago now, and the podcast crossover event has been a ton of fun. As usual, I'll be listening, and thank you very much. Uh, his blog is comicscomicscomics.com, I believe, right? Dot blog, was it? Something like that. Let's see if I can find it out. I know his Twitter is BigOx37. Yes. Uh, let's see. Comics. But while you do that, I, I was actually looking through a Paradox Press, the big book of the 70s, uh, a couple of weeks ago. All right. And there's a there's a there's a couple of strips on Jiggle on Jiggle TV. Oh really? And that's the first time I'd actually seen it in writing. Besides when we talked about it during uh, the Cotter episode. Now you'll see so, it uh, everywhere. You know? Now it's going to pop out every single time. Yep. That's right. Well, you know, what's funny is that I was a I mean a huge fan of Three's Company. And uh, mm. as weird as it is, I mean, I, I, I was, you know, titillated by uh, Suzanne Summers and Joyce DeWitt, but I didn't really, I was so young, I didn't get the sexual context of it. That's, sure. how, that's how weirdly young I was. Like, I was, I saw it as a very funny show. Uh, I knew that, you know, she was supposed to be sexy, but I didn't, I didn't really get that it was supposed to be so titillating 
Uh, and that's, that was the point of like one of the goals of that the was, show. Yeah. That was pretty much why most of America watched it was <laughs> was to see Suzanne Somers and the other women without without uh, brassiers. But uh, yeah, we, we you know we had a great time both with Gru. Gru was something also I uh, read a little bit as a kid. My dad picked it up and uh, Welcome Back Cotter is something Chris had in his arsenal for quite a while. Oh. Kind of, kind of leaving that one in the chamber for a while before we unleash it on the world. So uh, we'll 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 find some more New York based stuff to really uh, draw draw out the accents over here. Why not over here? But uh, and his his website is comicscomicscomics.blog. dot blog. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you check it out. It's he just writes about comics and things he likes. Mm-hmm. He, uh, current comics. Also, I think he does a weekly roundup of current. I believe comics. so too. Uh, right now, he's got plop number fourteen, which is. One of my favorite series he's talking about mm-hmm. on there. So go check it out. Uh, great friend of the show. Absolutely. Uh, and if you would like to write to us and be our friend, we need friends. Uh, we talk... do. We're very lonely. <laughs> we are very lonely. You want to talk to us about <laughs> Chris Claremont, Alan Davis, Excalibur, Marvel UK, or you just want to really tell us what a horrible job we did doing the British accents. Well, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic t-mill history. We're, at tum- we're on Tumblr at cosmic t-mill history.tumblr.com. Find us on Twitter at cosmic t-mill and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. You can find our weekly writings over at weirdsciencedccomics.com and Chris has daily writings at Chris is on infiniteearth.com where he does a different DC comic every single day of the week. He breaks it down, puts some uh, panels up, uh, does a kind of a uh, opinion piece at the end or a wrap yeah. up and uh, some ads. It is truly the next best thing to reading the comic. And uh, it's really been a grab bag lately, but. Uh, a smorgasbord, yes. Uh, you did a. God, you did that Supergirl. What was that? That. Uh, oh, the Supergirl PSA one, uh, PSA. the seatbelts one. Yes, lo- the American Honda. Yes. Uh, yeah, you did a couple recently that I really was uh, digging, digging on in there. You definitely check it out. If you can't check it out every day, save them up for a week. Just read them in, yeah. read them in a batch. It works that way too. Binge read. It's yeah. always in there. And while you binge, listen to this program. <laughs> uh, speaking of this program, we've got a website, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where you can find all of our show notes, all of our past shows in chronological order. Uh, that's for all of Weird Comics history as well well as the cosmic treadmill that's right it's the place to go and we talked about going back to listen to some archives so if you're going to do that that is the Podbean is not is not the place you want to go to (laughs) weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com but uh i think that's all we got from this week chris got anything else for him i think that'll do it well until next time folks i want you to keep it on the treadmill britishly Bip, bip.